Creative Babble. Last time on Pretend Radio, Martin McNally needed some cash. So what did he do? He hijacked a plane with 90 passengers on board. His plan was simple. Demand a half a million dollars, jump out of the plane, and disappear into the darkness of night. If you haven't listened to part one, check that out first. But if you're a badass like Martin McNally, stick around and live a little. I'm Javier Leva, and this is Pretend Radio. Stories about real people pretending to be someone else. Let's pick up the story where we last left off. Martin McNally, a 28-year-old, is sitting on the rear stairs of a 727. The pressure is pulling him out. He slowly scoots down the steps. So here's what happened. I put both my feet out, and I very slowly eased my body out onto the airstream. Now, I'm, I've got both of my hands on the bottom of the step. And I'm looking towards the earth, okay? And there's nothing else in my body uh, connected to the plane except my two hands. And this is 300 miles an hour. So um, I look up, and in my brain I'm thinking, boy, if they were, if they knew I was in this, this vulnerable, uh, hanging on this uh, plane like this. Uh, and they would just come in, come in here and blow me away and hit me in the head and boom, I'd be dead. McNally holds tight to the bag full of money and begins to free fall. I released my hands. And uh, I immediately uh, separated from the plane. And I started to turn and somehow my feet were going down to earth at 300 miles an hour. It's the middle of the night, and he has no idea where he'll land. Beneath him looks like water. Could it be Lake Michigan? This is all happening really fast. He remembers what he researched in those library books. From 10,000 feet at 300 miles an hour out of the plane, I would have to delay the opening of the chute approximately uh, 15 to 20 seconds to reach up speed that wouldn't blow out the panels. He counts in his head. Somehow I got uh, uh, configured where I was uh, facing uh, Earth and I was just flying down. Uh, at one point I was thinking, boy, this is, this is nuts. This is really something here. I got to get to terminal velocity, which is about 130 miles an hour before I can pull that chute. If he pulls the ripcord too early, the chute will just tear like tissue paper. I was getting ready to pull the ripcord. I uh, moved my right hand in, and I left my left hand out. And because I left my left hand out, I, I spun. I went into a spin. And I'll tell you, it was a panic spin because, uh, oh, this is rough, rough. What's, what's happening here? Uh, and when it did come out, I was facing Earth. And it popped out uh, probably one or two feet, one to two feet. And it came back up and slammed me in my face. It uh, chipped my uh, chin, a little uh, skin uh, bruise there, a little blood. And it blasted my uh, eyes, both eyes, and 
They were bruised. McNally looks up at the canopy as it pulls him away from the earth. Then he looks down and he realizes that the bag full of money slipped out of his hands. And I looked down and I'll be damned. I saw this package spinning. It was probably about 25 or 30 feet away from me at the time. But the package spinning, it broke away. I started screaming and hollering and my legs were going every which way and my hands were going every which way. And my exact words were, oh, fuck, motherfucker, how did I fucking do this? All this time and money and trouble. Jesus fucking Christ. I said, oh, fuck this. I'm going to follow the money. So I immediately look on the ground. I need I need to get some points on the ground so that I can ve- vector uh, the drop, like uh, a bomb, you know, uh, see where it's going to go. I don't see any, any points on the ground, all right? Uh, at, at that point there, I see this thing, it goes into, not water, but clouds. And I said, damn, I am hit. What now? He's beat up, he lost all his money, and by the time he reaches the ground, there will be hundreds of FBI agents looking for him. What's the point? McNally considered ending it all. I disconnected the left, left leg strap. Boom. I disconnected the right leg strap. Boom, that's loose. Now all I gotta do is disconnect the chest strap and let me let myself fall and I'll be dead in a matter of seconds. So, I get the chest strap un- unbuckles and I pull it about uh, two or three inches out and I says, well, wait a minute here, wait a minute. The money's gone, but I'm still here. The money can be replaced, but I can't. I said to myself, within two weeks, you'll be back up in the air and you'll get another plane. And you'll do it at uh, the Indianapolis airport. That, ladies and gentlemen, is called persistence. When I landed on the ground, my feet uh, dug in, my head hit hard, and I was listening to listening and watching to see if any farms uh, turn on their lights. Nothing happened. The only thing that was going down is the dogs. Dogs apparently picked up that something something was going. Dogs all over were barking. Woof, 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 woof. Yeah, they knew knew something was uh, uh, screwy little in the area. And uh, I couldn't see anything in front of my face, not even two inches. So... I took the parachute and went deeper into the woods. And I put the uh, parachute under a tree trunk. Uh, and uh, I put some leaves over it. And I climbed into it. And I went to sleep. Went to sleep. So what woke me up was uh, a helicopter. The, the engine, the helicopter engine, rotor. And this thing woke me up about 12 noon. And the shadow of this rotor went directly over me. And I'm thinking to myself, damn, these fuckers are Johnny on the spot. Could be hit. Oh, by the way, I had to take a poop. So I took a poop in the uh, parachute and squished it in there. I figured if they find the parachute, uh, 
that's my uh, gift to them. <laughs> they, they, they wouldn't like uh, a shitty goddamn parachute. McNally jumps over the barbed-wired fence. On the other side of the fence was a gravel road. He could go left or he could go right. It doesn't really matter. I was w- walking uh, along the, the street, and I noticed uh, one car in that Indiana place. I said, okay, somewhere in Indiana place. So I saw another car, Indiana place. Okay, two cars in Indiana. That, uh, yeah, that could mean something. So then I saw a third and a fourth car, and I said, all right, I'm somewhere in Indiana. Whereabouts, I have no idea. What he needs to do is get the hell out of there. It's dark, he's lost, and badly bruised up. He extends his thumb and begins hitchhiking in the direction of the city lights. Nobody's picking me up. But a car comes by and turns around and stops behind me. And this guy gets out. It was a cop in an unmarked car. He gets out and uh, he says, where are you going? And I told him I'm going to Michigan, Detroit. And he says, uh, where are you coming from? McNally told him he was coming from a friend's house. Why are you walking? I said, well, I'm hitchhiking. And uh, I had a fight with my brother. I came down here uh, to uh, get my brother and we wound up having a fight. He got drunk and uh, we had a fight. Got in a scuffle. And uh, he said, what's your name? So I gave my name, Patrick McNally. And uh, he says, can I see some identification? So I started my uh, driver's license. It was made out of my brother's name. And uh, I gave, showed him that, and uh, he wrote all that information down. Uh, and uh, he went back to his car. And as he was getting ready to get into his car, he said, uh, would you like a ride into town? Uh, would you like a ride into town? And I said, well, yes, of course. Thank you very much. As I was getting into the car, uh, uh, his wife was there, too. But uh, I took my gun and threw, threw it uh, about 20 feet in the uh, field. I didn't want that gun with me. McNally doesn't know this at the time, but that wasn't just a police officer. He was the town's police chief. I threw the gun and got in the car, and as we were driving along, she said, things are pretty, uh, pretty hot uh, right now. There's a lot of police uh, looking. Uh, I said, yeah, I know. I heard about it. There was a skyjacking, and uh, uh, I guess guess they figure he's in the area. This sounds like a bunch of BS, doesn't it? Yeah. I'm amazed that the chief of police didn't didn't take me in for some fucking questioning. What are the chances that this guy jumps out of a plane, lands, and gets picked up by the police chief and gets away with it? Unbelievable. Well, it's true. Every word. I pulled a New York Times article from June 30th, 1972. Sure enough, chief of police for Peru, Indiana, picked up Martin McNally and dropped him off at a motel and then just drove off without questioning this guy's story. By the way, the chief of police eventually became the mayor of Peru, Indiana. After getting dropped off at the motel, McNally's hungry and wants to grab a bite to eat. So I walked into the bar, sat down, and uh, ordered a beer, uh, and uh, was looking around the bar, and there was about 10 people in the bar. 
And I was in there for about at least 45 minutes. But, uh, yeah, these people was, uh, were starting to look at me. I ordered a total of two beers and one hamburger. So while I'm in the bar, I go into the uh, restroom. And I look in the mirror. And I was shocked. My face was really screwed up. And uh, so I brushed my hair, uh, put water on my hair, and uh, tried to clean myself up a little bit. But yeah, I, I'm amazed that the chief of police didn't uh, didn't take me in for some fucking questioning. The next morning, McNally calls his buddy Walter. Now Sunday comes along, and I call Walter Pelikowski, and I tell him, I tell him, Walt, this is Mac. Listen. Well, he was shocked, shocked to hear me. He said, damn, I heard, heard I thought you got killed. I said, well, I'm, I didn't get killed, I'm alive. And uh, I need some help. I need some help. Uh, you need to come down to where I am right now. So I gave him the address. I gave him the address. And uh, I thought he was going to be coming down. So I'm waiting for him. This, this is uh, Sunday. I'm waiting for him. Nothing happens. So uh, on Monday, I call him, and I, I, I said, uh, Walt, uh, I need to get out of here. I need I need you, your help. You're going to have to get down here to Peru, Indiana, to this hotel. I said, there's no other way. Walter doesn't arrive in Peru, Indiana until Tuesday. Let's go. So he got on the, got on the road, and he's driving. And after we got uh, about a half a mile down the road, I relaxed at that time there, and I said, uh, boy, this was a rough situation here, dude. Oh, man, I'm telling you. And I told him all about getting stopped by the chief of police. We got an I-70 going east, and uh, uh, that's it, to beat home. Take I-70 east and uh, take that to I-75 north, and uh, we're right into... Uh, Home, home stretch. Once back home in Detroit, McNally calls his friend James Petty. So I called him, and uh, he was uh, surprised to uh, hear hear my voice and everything. But uh, <clears throat> I told him, uh, "Yeah, we should go out. For, we should go out for some coffee." When we were done with our coffee, we went back to Petty's house, and uh, he got he got out uh, and stood on me. Uh, in the front door area and looked at me and said, okay, Mac, I'll see you later. And that's really weird because Petty didn't invite him in. Something was up. Now, this was unusual because uh, on prior uh, occasions, I would always go into the house and talk to him and his wife and sit down and relax for a little bit. But uh, this, this was different. Unbeknownst to me, he had already had contact with the FBI. Balzac told the FBI, you need to go uh, talk to uh, James Petty. And he, they gave him, he gave him his address. So the cops, the FBI went to uh, Petty, talked to him, and he denied knowing everything. He, he denied everything. But what happened is that uh, James Balzac called to his undercover uh, contact in the uh, Detroit uh, Sheriff's Office. He called him and says, I think I know who pulled that uh, skyjack in St. Louis. Rich 
Kaczynski immediately called the FBI in Detroit. He says, I think I know who got that plane in St. Louis. The guy's name is Martin McNally. He's from Wyandotte, Michigan. So the FBI went back to uh, James Betty. And at that point, point there, he says, when the FBI threatened him with the prosecution for being an accessory, he said, all right, I'll tell you what I know. So what, they had a uh, car there uh, with uh, some uh, FBI agents that were a couple of couple of cars down from where me and Paul uh, Petty uh, were. So I, I knew something was up at this time. And when I was got to my house, I drove by really slow, and I looked in the driveway, and there was a car in my driveway. Well, I didn't stop at my house. I was going to keep going. And I got about 10 feet, 10 or 15 feet in front of my house, and a car popped out, popped out in front of me, and I knew at that point it was, it was I was it. So the FBI uh, popped out, and they had all these guns and pistols and everything else pointing at me, and there were a bunch of them, probably 20 of them. And they're screaming, Get out of the car, get out of the car, get out of the car. Put your hands up, put your hands up. So the FBI guy, Neil Welch, he says, uh, Martin McNally, you're being arrested for suspicion of aircraft piracy. And I said, what's that? And he says, well, now that we have you arrested, is it okay if we go into your house and look around? And I said, no goddamn way can you go into my house. You better have a search warrant. Uh, and if you've already entered my house, you can forget about having any fucking case against me because you got an illegal search. So, yeah, well, as it turned out, Chris, uh, they had entered Mike's house before my arrest. They had uh, entered that house, and they noticed a lot of stuff in there <clears throat> related to airplane hijackings. But, uh, yeah, I, I, I got screwed. The FBI screwed me good, and uh, I got nothing for them. They're all fucking corrupt mother bastards. Okay, folks, there you have it. This is where the story ends. Just kidding. The story is about to get crazier, if that's even possible. McNally goes to court and is found guilty of air piracy and was given a life sentence, which at the time meant 30 years in prison. He's taken to a U.S. penitentiary in Marion, Illinois. This was the country's first supermax prison, which was the home to some of the country's most dangerous criminals. And as luck would have it, he shared a cell with another hijacker named Garrett Trapanel. This was a deadly combo. In January of 1978, he stopped by my cell. He says, Mac, how would you like to leave uh, leave here uh, in a helicopter? And I says, uh, well, I'll tell you what, uh, yeah, I'd like to do that, but uh, I'll need to know more deta- details. So uh, Gary says, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about this. Here's the plan. Trapnell's lady friend on the outside was a former Army staff sergeant. Her name was Barbara Oswald. She was in love with Trapnell. She'd do anything for him. The plan was for Barbara Oswald to commandeer a helicopter and break them out of prison. Hijacking got them in here. It was also going to get them out. So what happened? On May the 23rd, he had this 
about maybe noon, one o'clock or so. But when he finished with the visit, he came in, I was in my cell, and he says, are you ready to go? I says, well, I'm always ready. Uh, when? <laughs> and he says, tonight. I says, well, uh, I guess so. So I knew that uh, this was going to be rough because the woman has to be 150% alert. Well, it's not like this. Barbara Oswald was a pro, and she knew her way around helicopters. While in the Army, she was an air traffic controller in a helicopter squadron. Barbara Oswald hired a helicopter to survey land for real estate. Once up in the air... She pulled off his headset and showed him the gun and told him, we're going to the penitentiary in Marion, Illinois. We got uh, people that we need to release. Meanwhile, back at the Marion Penitentiary, the boys were making their move. We had count that day at 4 o'clock. And usually after count, uh, they have uh, lunch, and then they open the yard. Today, uh, on March 23rd, the yard didn't open, but I had gone out into the corridor and looked to see if the yard opened. I went back to traveling. I said, the yard's not open. I don't know what's happening. There's a delay about something. I, I hope we aren't, uh, I hope we aren't uh, dead in the water here. So I think uh, it was about, uh, oh, maybe a quarter to five when the yard opened up. They're waiting with their heads up turned to the sky. And at, at approximately 6 p.m., this helicopter came over the prison. I said, that's it. That's all right. So I said, I'll give you the call when, when they'll make the run. And what happened is the uh, helicopter turned south, uh, and it was supposed to go south about two miles. And then it was supposed to come in at 5,000 feet and go south about two miles and then drop to uh, 2,000 feet and come into the prison at uh, full speed. Back in the helicopter? So the pilot disconnected his transponder so that they couldn't uh, track the uh, helicopter and started going to Marion. Now, when they got to Marion, like I say, they turned south and uh, they went south about a couple of miles and he turned around heading back towards the penitentiary. And that's when he told Barbara, you need to open the door, Jimmy, it open so that uh, they can get in here. So did we land. Now, when uh, when Barbara looked to the left, she was going to open up the left door. He noticed that she, she was looking at the door, and he was she wasn't looking at at the uh, pistol. So he turned around. He released his controls on the chopper. He took he turned around in his seat and grabbed the gun. And the gun fired off a 44 caliber slug that went past his head, I believe, and blew a big hole in the, in the, in the door. So there's a big hole in there. And this chopper is out of control. I mean, there's they're, they're, they're a struggle in here. And they're coming down fast. I mean, this is life and death. So Barbara says... Uh, that's okay. I got more, more, more weapons. 
So she leans down and opens up her attache case to get a weapon. And Alan Barklitch takes her gun and unloads into her body. And I believe he hit her twice in the head, twice in the skull, and twice in the chest. So as this as this uh, helicopter is coming in, he still continues to come into the penitentiary. Now, if he had just taken her dead body back to St. Louis, uh, we'd have been okay. Uh, probably, maybe. Remember, McNally has no clue what went down in the helicopter. They're only about 400 feet away from the from the uh, penitentiary. And I, I, I flagged Grapnell uh, and Kenny. I says, now. I screamed out loud. I says, now, move. So we started running fast as our little legs could carry us. And I'm telling you, we were running fast, and it felt like we were running slow and slow motion. But as it was, me and uh, Kenny and Trap, we got into place, and uh, I got uh, I got on a uh, yellow. Uh, I got I was standing on a yellow jacket. Okay, I'm standing on a yellow jacket, and I'm jumping up and down, waving my hands to get the attention of the pilot because he's supposed to come right over me and drop into this area. And there's there's a sufficient area for the rotors. He can get into this area. So I'm jumping up and down. After a, a short time, a couple of minutes, whatever, um, I hear the rotors turning down. And I said, uh, said to these two dudes, I says, we got a problem. I think we've been set up here because that, that chopper is shutting down. I said, we need to get back into the yard. Uh, by the time they had an investigation, a couple hours later, uh, they came to Trapnell and says, yeah, we, we uh, this is over. And your girlfriend, Barbara Oswald, is dead out in a helicopter out front. This is a news report with the helicopter pilot, Alan Barklitch. Alan Barklage flew helicopters in Vietnam, occasionally picking up wounded soldiers. Barklage had been hired by a woman to fly her to Cape Girardeau, but in the air she pulled a gun and ordered him to fly to the federal prison in Marion, Illinois. She wanted to pick up three convicts as part of a prison break. Barklage foiled the escape attempt by letting go of the controls, grabbing the gun and killing the woman, all in midair. It was a story reported all over the world. I would say the dominating thought that I have when I think back on that is uh, there may have been a way to do that without shooting a person. That still bothers Right. Was there a way I could have done it? You know, could I have talked her out of it? It was a, a tragic situation. It shouldn't have gone down as it did. I was released on January the 27th of 2010. So what happened to the bag filled with half a million dollars that dropped out of the sky? A farmer, a farmer in uh, Peru, Indiana, uh, found it out. He had a a 20-acre bean farm. And his annual income from his bean farm was probably about 
It's under $10,000. Now, here's what happened on this. Uh, the old man was out in his mean farm, and he noticed this uh, container. And he noticed it had AA on it, on the, on the um, money bag. So this is about 10 o'clock in the morning, okay, 10 o'clock, 10.30. So he doesn't call. He, he, he pretty much knew what it was. He didn't call the FBI or the uh, cops. So the old man went out to the farm and watched over the bag. When the uh, youngster got there, the youngster came out and looked at it. He opened it up, and he said, oh, you know what this is? This is the money they gave that skyjacker. And the old man says, yeah, I think so, too. What should we do? And the youngster says, well, we better call the sheriff. Uh, so the old man said, okay, okay. I'll tell you what. The old man had larceny in his heart. I'm sure if the youngster said, well, what we need to do is put this in uh, a closet and uh, not say anything to anybody about this and just see how this develops because we may be able to get a big reward. If we turn this in, or maybe we can just keep the money. Uh, the old man called the sheriff, and within a matter of minutes, they had FBI agents there, they had local police, they had the news media there. They were all over it. 500000 bucks in cash to the dollar. 500000 bucks turned in. Now, what happened is that a lot of the people who knew this family called him and said, you stupid fucking people. You had money from God, from heaven, and you didn't have to turn this in. You could have kept it and kept quiet. And as it is, they offered you $10,000 reward, and what did you do? You refused to take it. You wanted at least 5%. So you got an attorney. And the attorney told you, you can't sue these people. It's that's gratuitous, and they don't have to give you shit. So they finally accepted the $10,000. But the the uh, wife of the old man told the media that this destroyed her family. I guess it would. Everybody knows you're retarded now. And, uh, yeah, the, the, uh, the wife said that, yeah, this destroyed the family. So uh, the old man that... Uh, he actually found the uh, package. Uh, he died years ago. I think he was about 62 years old at the time. But he's, he's dead and gone, and uh, the chief of police is dead and gone. The clerk in the hotel in Peru, Indiana, she's dead and gone. The judge that sentenced me is dead and gone. And uh, most of the people involved in the case are dead and gone. And I'm still alive and cooking and happy, happy as hell. And... Uh, drinking my wine and my beer and uh, just uh, loving life, loving freedom. All right, guys, that was part two of The Hijacker. And I'm back with Chris Niddle from the Burner Phone Podcast who produced this episode, who actually was on the phone with uh, Martin McNally for two and a half hours. And I'm telling you, if you listen to the two and a half hours, it was riveting. So, um, Chris, tell me, you know, I think one of the biggest moments or one, one of the many biggest moments in this episode was when 
McNally just drops the cash. I mean, I didn't see that coming. You know, he actually got on the plane, jumped off with the cash and then drops it. Yeah. When he pulled the chute, the um, the money wasn't wasn't secured properly to his body and the leather straps that were holding the satchel broke off. And so he saw the money just flying in midair about, you know, 30 meters below him, whatever the distance was. But he could see the money disappear. And, you know, I've been skydiving twice and I totally get it because um, if you've never done it before, you know, your arms, if you could picture this, your arms have to be kind of spread out and Mm -hmm. kind of behind your head where your hands are behind your head. Because if you even move one of your arms like forward, you, you basically are creating like a spin and you will spin uncontrollably. Mm-hmm. Um, so I could totally see how that, that moment he just lost control of the cash. I mean, that must've been a horrible feeling. Yeah. I mean, imagine just all of the, the work and time and effort he put into pulling off this heist only to see the money disappear. I can't imagine what he was feeling. Would you have taken the money? <laughs> you know <what> I mean? <laughs> uh, no comment. Well, I'll tell you what, man. I've given this some thought, and I'm sure that everybody that listened to the episode probably asked themselves that same question because it's fair, right? You know, money just fell out of the sky. Sure. And I got to tell you, man, I don't think I would take that money just because it would be marked or, you know, it would it would just, with my luck, <laughs> I would totally get busted, you know, like a week later. Okay. So the next question I want to ask you is this Garrett Trepnell guy that was actually his, his inmate um, or his roomie in uh, Marion Penitentiary. Like, tell me about this guy. Cause this guy has a fascinating backstory, right? Sure. Yeah. So Trapnell was a, he was a con man. He was a bank robber. He was a high hijacker, just like McNally. And they became friends in Marion and they schemed this escaped attempt. It's funny because, you know, I mentioned in the, in the episode that hijacking got them in. Hijacking's going to get them out. And so they uh, cooked up the scheme with uh, the Barbara Oswald, which was apparently, you know, Trepnell's girlfriend on the outside. But like these guys never met in person. They they kind of formed this relationship while in prison. Right. Barbara Oswald and uh and Garrett Trapnow? I'm sure she was visiting him. I, I'm pretty sure yeah. she was coming in to visit him. But they fell in love, and he was a master manipulator, and he was able to, to convince her to, to hijack the helicopter. And that's crazy because you hear that all the time of, like, you know, these, like, people falling in love with prisoners through love letters and stuff. But, like, this woman was willing to risk her life. You know, to break this guy out. But then we didn't even cover this in the episode, but it gets even more ridiculous because after that whole helicopter incident, what happened next? Right. So after Barbara passed away, Trapnell convinced Robin Oswald, who was Barbara, Barbara's daughter, to do another hijacking. He said he told Robin that he was actually her father. And he manipulated her and she believed it. And she was only 17, right? Yeah. So so Robin in the hijacking attempt, it was December 21st, 1978. And at 17 years old, she hijacked a TWA Flight 541 and she demanded for Trapnell to be freed. And she had dynamite strapped to her body. And um, the FBI negotiators were able to free the prisoners 
and have, you know, um, Oswald surrender. There was no injuries or death. And what's crazy is that the bomb, the supposed bomb that was strapped to her chest was actually railroad flares. <laughs> yeah. That's crazy, man. Like the, the that guy, we should just do another episode on <laughs> Garrett Trapp now, huh? I mean, he sounds crazier yeah. than McNally. Yeah, he passed away. I think he passed away in 91. But yeah, he, he's got he's got quite the interesting story, right? Yeah. Well, this this was a fascinating, you know, time in history. Obviously, hijacking is not, you know, nobody wants to glorify it. Right. Uh, and hijacking is definitely a lot different now than it was back then. But it's definitely a moment in time that that, you know, has kind of been forgotten or not talked about much. So I'm so glad that you brought this to us and that we were able to hear this story firsthand. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for, for helping me out with this and collaborating on this. It's been a, it's been a learning experience. And, and like you said, it is a, it is a moment in time. They call it the golden age of skyjacking as we talked about earlier. So Chris, do you know uh, if, did you ask him if he's been on a plane recently? I did. I asked him about that. And he, he told me that he's too paranoid. He's too paranoid to even step on a plane. He's, he's worried about Homeland Security agents and um, popping up on a watch list. Um, but sometimes he'll walk into an airport and just kind of look around, just kind of reminisce and, and watch security and watch the people go through the motions. It's really bizarre. But he actually hasn't been on a plane since 1972. That's wild. Well, Chris, thank you so much, man. I hope we could keep this collaboration going. Uh, of course. Yeah, man. I can't wait to hear what you cook up next. Yeah, I look forward to it. I just love The Hijacker, and I hope you did too. What a great way to wrap up season two. But don't worry, I won't be gone for long. I've already recorded all of season three and most of season four, so you're not gonna get rid of me that easily. So what is season three about? Well, I have really, really big news. Season three is gonna be completely different. It's gonna be a serialized story about the cult that I covered in our very first episode titled The Prophet. I've been working on it since season one and been keeping it a secret for a long time, but now it's out in the open. At first it started off as a follow-up to The Prophet, but then the more I started digging, the more I realized this is its own season. One story over eight or nine episodes. Here's a preview. How far are you willing to go to get to heaven? Why didn't you get him and throw him to the ground and get his devils out? Pretend Radio Season 3 takes you deep inside the Word of Faith Fellowship. Your destination will be on the left. All right, so I'm going to drive up to the gates of the Word of Faith Fellowship. Okay, there's a guard in a pickup truck shining his lights at me. He's blocking the entrance. I'm not going to be able to go in. Survivors and current cult members come face to face. We are a group of people who are determined to not let another generation 
of people live the same life that we lived. And for those of you who are laughing and think that it's funny, we don't think it's funny. New victims come forward. My youngest son's still there. You're saying Maddie's still in there? Yeah, he's still there. He was supposed to leave when I left, and I haven't talked to him since. And he's my youngest son, so it's very, very difficult. And the corruption gets deeper. When your Department of Social Services won't help you, and the Sheriff's Department won't help you, where do you go? Where do you go? They've taken my jobs away. My husband is a police officer. They went to his police department to try to take his job away. They have followed me. They have videoed me, as they're doing right now. They have, they have tried their best to hurt me. It's not going to happen. Pretend Radio Season 3, The Prophet, coming soon. The Fall Line is a true crime audio serial that investigates cold cases in marginalized southeastern communities. Our first season, which has just been re-recorded, edited, and re-released, covered the case of missing Augusta, Georgia twins, Danette and Jeanette Millbrook, who disappeared in 1990. In season 1.5, we covered the 1989 disappearance of Brunswick, Georgia siblings, Monica and Michael Bennett. Our second season, premiering in spring 2018, is our biggest yet. The story of multiple infants stolen from an Atlanta hospital, Grady Memorial, a facility that has been identified as having the highest newborn abduction rate in the nation. Two of those children are still missing today. We hope you'll join us as we search for answers in the cases of Tavish Sutton and Raymond Green and cover the stories of the babies who were eventually found and discover why so many have disappeared from Grady in the first place. Our season preview drops February 20th, and we hope you'll tune in. I'm Nina Instad, host of Already Gone, a true crime podcast focused on Detroit, Michigan, and the Great Lakes region. We look at older or lesser-known cases, stories that you won't hear anywhere else. In the weeks ahead, we're covering unsolved murders, missing persons cases, and looking back at a few resolved cases that made the headlines. Listen to Already Gone on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcatcher. Creative Back.